Hey y'all, my name's Eliza. Today I am speaking with Dr. Bruce Berglund, who is a historian and author, as well as a three-time Fulbright scholar and a former faculty member at Calvin University and the University of Kansas. Dr. Berglund has authored several books for a variety of audiences, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Berglund about his 2020 book, The Fastest Game in the World, Hockey and the Globalization of Sports. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. That would work. Dr. Berglund, to start out, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how you got into hockey, not just as a researcher, but also personally. Um, in your book, you talked about how important hockey was to you, and I know that some of the best research can be things that you're really passionate about. So I would love to hear about your background with hockey. Yeah, so I grew up in Duluth, Minnesota. I grew up about a uh, block away from an outdoor hockey rink. And back then, the skating season, so it's, it's changed dramatically since the time I was a kid back in the 70s in terms of the skating season. But back then, I would be on skates on outdoor rinks already in November, and the skating season would run until March. My dad had been a college hockey player. He was a high school and college referee, actually. And so I learned the game from, from him. And I played throughout my youth. Duluth had this, this robust park system with hockey teams at all of these different neighborhood parks. So I played in that and I just uh, really enjoyed, I enjoyed playing the game and I was also fascinated by the lore and history of the game. So I, I had different, you know, different periodicals that I subscribed to as a kid and, and learned all the records and learned all the stories and so forth. And, you know, by the time I was in high school, I was pretty much a mediocre player. So my career ended. And as I've traveled around in the course of my uh, of my life and, you know, my professional stops, I had kind of lost connection with the sport in terms of certainly in terms of playing it, but but also really in following it. Then later in my career, as I made the turn into doing sports history, and this came actually as a result, I used to work on the, the New Books Network podcast, and I did the podcast related to recent publications in sports history and sociology. And so I made a turn at that point in my career into uh, sports studies and sports history. And as I was looking around in terms of topics to, uh, to study, I thought, you know, why not return to the sport that was kind of my original love in, in terms of sports and, and the sport uh, that I knew the lore and the history. And also, you know, given the work I'd been doing in, in Prague and in Russian and East European history, I knew the connection of hockey to culture and society and politics in, in that region. And so, yeah, that's how I made the move into, you know, writing, writing the history of world hockey. That's really cool. Thank you. Sports can be a representation of political interaction, international interaction that people don't often think about. But people put so much emotion and passion into sporting events because they feel on some level that their team is a representation or an extension of their country or themselves. I know that hockey came to Eastern Europe a little bit later than it came to some other parts of the world as the sport developed. Could you give me an overview of the history of hockey in Eastern Europe and Soviet Union? Sure. We could, yes, we can do the, the thumbnail sketch, the history of hockey in, in Eastern Europe and Soviet Union and Russia. 
So the first thing we have to talk about is, is what kind of hockey. So there were various forms of hockey that developed in the 19th century in Europe as well as in North America. And so the, the type of hockey that we're familiar with today originated in Eastern Canada in the 1870s and 1880s. So the, the kind of hockey we see that's played with a puck on a smaller indoor rink. There was another kind of hockey that was played that developed in England and spread throughout Europe at a similar time in the 1800s. And this is played on an outdoor rink about the size of a soccer field. And it's played with a, with a ball rather than a puck. So there were these two different kinds of, of hockey. The Canadian version of the game, because it was played with fewer players and in a smaller space and could be played indoors, this is the game that really spread throughout the world. So it takes off in Canada, of course, it spreads into the United States. And then at about the turn of the century, it reaches Europe. So through England onto the continent. And one of the places where this Canadian version of the game first catches on is in Prague. And so for, for my research, I did quite a bit of research in the National Museum in Prague in the, the department related to Czech sports history. And it was fascinating to look back at the old newspaper accounts of this, this new variation of the game. So the Czechs had already been playing the European style of hockey on the larger rink and with a ball. And then to be introduced to the Canadian version of the game with a, with a puck and on a smaller rink and to see how they would debate, you know, which is the better form of the game, which one should we adopt and so forth. And in the first decade of the 20th century, in Prague, in Berlin, in Budapest, in Vienna, this Canadian version of hockey begins to take root. And it's uh, uh, popular at skating clubs. So you'll have, you'll have players on teams who are figure skaters, male figure skaters, who in the summer are soccer players. And then in the winter, they play this, this new version of hockey. So in the pre-war period, pre-World War I, the sport is slowly gaining participants in Central and Eastern Europe. And then after the war, what really gives it a boost is international competition, and in particular, the Olympics. When the Winter Olympics begin, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, selects the Canadian version of the game to be one of the sports in the Winter Olympics, as opposed to the version that's played in Europe, which we know of as bandy today, the version that's played with the ball. Ice hockey is a center of attraction. And so by introducing Canadian hockey into the Olympics, that this gives it kind of this stamp of legitimacy and it becomes a venue, as you were talking about before, of sports and politics and the way that people express their national identity at sporting events. So now that hockey is an international event, that it's in the Olympics, in the 1930s, there will be an annual world championship tournament. This becomes an expression for these different nations to, you know, a, a way to compete, a way to express rivalries and so forth through hockey, as with soccer and other international sports. And the place where, where hockey really becomes popular is interwar Czechoslovakia. And right away, the Czechs and Slovaks uh, become very good at hockey. They beat the Germans, they beat the Swiss, they beat other national teams and club teams. One of the stories I wish I could, I could write more about in the book is just how Prague becomes a, a hub 
of world hockey in the 1920s and 30s. It's really a fascinating story. So that's the picture in, in the pre-World War II period is, is the sport develops mainly in Prague, but also in other parts of, of Central and Eastern Europe. And then in the post-war period, the big story is hockey developing in the Soviet Union. So prior to World War II, the Russians had played this version of the game Bandy on the larger outdoor ice with a the ball. They called this Russian hockey. But then it's after the war when the Soviet Union becomes involved in international competitions and looks to be involved in the Olympics that they decide to make the switch to the international game, Canadian hockey. And so the Soviet Union has its first season of the first domestic season of Canadian hockey in 1946, 1947. And they work to quickly develop a, a world-class hockey program that competes in international tournaments. And already, so they began playing the sport in 1946. And already in 1954, they win the world championship. In 1956, they win uh, the Olympic gold medal. And then the Soviets, of course, become the dominant team in international hockey during the Cold War. In your book, you talked about how the Soviet leadership and how the Soviet team committed so much more time and energy to their training. And that really granted them an edge that allowed them to truly compete with teams or countries that had been playing hockey for so much longer. My understanding was that hockey was, again, very much a reflection of the national intent, of the national character. Would you mind talking a little bit about how the Russian style of play and style of training was meant to be a representation of the Soviet way of life? Yeah. So other historians who've done work on Soviet sports, and I think in particular of the work of Bob Edelman on, on Soviet sports, they've, they've talked about how in the post-World War II Soviet Union, so right after the war, the, the Soviets are, you know, the Soviets are now a world power and they seek to express their, their new standing internationally in international sports. So they're going to be engaged in international competition they look to participate in, in the Olympics. And so in this period, sports has a, a, a political aim for the Soviet leadership. So they want to have their teams and have their athletes compete in international events, compete in the Olympics. But it's also with the, the ideological purpose of demonstrating the superiority of the Soviet Union. Therefore, Soviet teams, Soviet athletes must win. And they put a great deal of effort into figuring out how are we going to be able to, in a, in a sport such as Canadian hockey, which the Soviets are adopting uh, anew, how are we going to be able to compete internationally, not be embarrassed, and, and win? So there was a great deal of effort that among sports officials, among hockey officials, among hockey coaches, and many of these hockey coaches, I should say, the early Soviet hockey coaches had been soccer coaches, had been soccer players, had been coaches or players in this, this other form of hockey, Russian hockey or bandy. So they were, they were great athletes and they brought, you know, the interesting thing about Soviet hockey, especially early on, is you have these coaches and players who bring the skills and strategies and ideas about player development and athlete development 
that they've gained from other sports, particularly soccer, and they apply it to this new game of Canadian hockey. And so people who write about hockey and write about Soviet hockey make a point of how when the Soviets become involved in the sport in the late 1940s and 1950s, they bring about these dramatic changes, not only in player development, but also in, in strategy. And in a large part, it's due because, you know, we have people coming from other sports, in particular, the emphasis on, on soccer or drawing from soccer and introducing that into Canadian hockey. So, you know, to your question, in, in terms of asking about player development, there is, you really see this, this strong Soviet thread, you know, people who know the history of the Soviet Union, you know, the whole idea of the five-year plans and this emphasis during the Stalin period on, you know, these, these heroic efforts at labor and overcoming, not only meeting quotas, but overcoming quotas. In looking at records from the Soviet Hockey Committee, so of course the Soviet Union had a committee dedicated to overseeing and planning hockey. In looking at their records, there would be page after page of quotas. How many hockey players are we going to have in, in this city, in this region, and so forth? So there were quotas to hit. There were markers in terms of fitness markers and exercise markers that each player had to meet. So hockey was part of the planned Soviet economy. And this is how they aim to be the best team in the world, right? They, they believed in the Soviet method of if you set a plan and if you meet your markers and exceed your markers, success will come. And so this was the system that was really set down in the 1950s. And this was carried forward all the way, really all the way till the end of the Soviet Union. I have a sense that this drive to win and to excel at all times had a detrimental effect on the personal lives of the players in question who were separated from their families for weeks, right? Yeah, so this was the case in the late Soviet period by the, by the 1980s, is that this, this system of training and preparing was just so demanding. And, and I should explain to your listeners what this involved. So the system that was established in the 1950s for hockey was that hockey players were expected to train year round. So, you know, one of the advances in terms of player development that the Soviets introduced to hockey as well as to other sports is when the ice goes away in the spring, this isn't the end of hockey season. Your hockey training continues through the spring, through the summer, into the fall. And there were very few indoor rinks functioning in the, in the summer. I think there was one in Moscow through, throughout the 50s and 60s, right? So there were no rinks available. That meant that hockey players would go off ice and do different, you know, they do strength training, they do conditioning training. There was one club that was connected with an airplane factory that would put down sheets of aircraft metal on the ground, you know, to, to replicate ice. And the players would do shooting drills off of uh, aircraft metal. So the Soviet coaches were, were quite innovative in developing these methods of off ice training. But the aim was, is that the athletes were expected to train all year round in preparation for, for, for the hockey season. So this continues, you know, throughout the 60s, as the Soviets are gaining success in international tournaments, they won the world championships throughout the 1960s, throughout the 1970s. And as other national hockey programs in Czechoslovakia, in Sweden, in Finland, they began to copy in many ways what the Soviets had done, right? They also start to emphasize year-round training and conditioning and strength training and so forth. 
And so athletes in other countries are, are reaching the level of Soviet athletes in terms of their overall fitness and conditioning. And the Soviets recognizing this, other countries are catching up. What they do is, again, in the, in the Soviet way, we need to ramp up. We need to be more intensive in our inputs in order to continue to maintain our, our standing at the, uh, at the top in terms of world hockey. And so by the 1980s, players who are on the Soviet national team, they would, be, they would be in barracks. They would live in barracks for 11 months of the year. They would be at the barracks for six days a week. On Sundays, they could see their families. So during the summer, they trained. Their days would begin during the summer at 7 a.m. The days would finish at 7 p.m. So it was really just an onerous, rigid system of discipline and training. And by the mid to late 1980s, so the Soviet national team, it was winning Olympic medals. It was winning the world championship year after year. But the players, and I talk about this in the, in the book. So one player in particular was Igor Larionov, who ends up playing in the NHL in the 1990s. Uh, Larionov published a, uh, an open letter. To, to the coach of the Soviet team, Viktor Tikhonov. And he says, you know what? The Soviet Union is changing. The world is changing. This is a dictatorship. This is a tyranny. We never see our families. This, this system has to, has to end. And so with the breakdown in the 1980s, where you have players actually rebelling against their coaches and players also recognizing, you know, we're the best hockey team in the world. We're the best players in the world. But there was a sense, Soviet players by the 80s had the sense that, you know, what does it mean if I can't enjoy my family? What does it mean if fans expect perfection and they don't appreciate a good play or a good performance? And so, you know, in the 50s, there was this definite enthusiasm among players and coaches. You know, we're launching on this, this great new effort, as you see in Soviet society in general, right? There was this belief. We are building something new. We are building communism. By the 1980s, there was a weariness. There was a sense of we're just simply following the script of what is expected of us. And the enthusiasm was gone. As I was reading The Fastest Game, that's a thread I saw appear in at least one other country as well. Well, it was a few decades earlier, actually, but there was a pretty big conflict, scandal, I'm not <laughs> exactly sure what I would call it, with the Czechoslovakian ice hockey team in 1950. And that was a fascinating story. I was completely blown away. Would you um, <laughs> share with the listener what happened with the Czechoslovakian ice hockey team in 1950? Yeah, yeah, no, that is a that is a terrific story. You know, when you asked earlier, how did I get interested in researching hockey and writing this history? A big part of this is uh, when I was a graduate student, I was in Prague working on my dissertation, you know, and I was doing a project on 20th century Czechoslovak political history. And I met a guy in the archive. Uh, he was a Czech. He had been an emigre in Canada. He was in Prague doing research on his dissertation. And he had played, he had played hockey at the professional level in Czechoslovakia before he emigrated in the 1980s. And I learned from him this story about the 1950. Czechoslovak national team. And I had never heard this before. And it was just such a fascinating story. And I always held on to that with, with the thought of someday I would like to write about this story because it's it's just so, it's just so remarkable. 
So what the circumstances were in the immediate aftermath of the war. So as I said, before World War II, Prague had been a center of, of hockey in Europe. Czech club teams, the Czechoslovak national team had been very successful internationally before the war. And then after the war, so when you have a, a coalition government in charge in Czechoslovakia right after the war, the Czechoslovak national team picked up with its success. So it won the silver medal at the 1948 Winter Olympics. It won the world championship in 1949. And in 1950, the Czechoslovak team, they were at the airport in Prague and they were preparing to fly to London to defend their world championship. And they were prevented from flying by the, the state police, by the Stutny uh, Bezpečnosti, the STB. So the players, you know, a bunch of the players went to the pub and they were grumbling about the fact that they weren't allowed to leave and that the, the state police said that for various reasons that they couldn't go to London to defend their title. And they were you know, cursing the government, cursing the STBA and cursing Clement Gottwald, the leader. And of course, the police came and, and arrested them. And in the course of the interrogations, the players were stunned to learn that it wasn't simply the police had arrested them because they were cursing the government in the pub. They were interrogated for, for treason. And uh, what the government was looking into and what the government did, did find in the course of these interrogations is that there were players on the team, on the Czechoslovak team, who had had contact with with people at the American embassy. And there had been conversations about having the Americans would support the creation of a Czechoslovak hockey team in exile. So the idea would be that some of these hockey players would emigrate and that the U.S. would fund this, this hockey team in, in exile. And there had been in the winter, in the, in the summer of 1949, and then in the winter of 49 and 50, a few high-profile Czech athletes had emigrated while competing abroad. And so the government did fear having the hockey team go to London and then go into exile and create this team in exile that would then be bad publicity for, for the Czechoslovak government. And so players were arrested. They were eventually convicted. 12 players were convicted. They were put on trial. A number of players were sent to, their sentence was hard labor in the uranium mines in in Western Bohemia. So this was in 1950. And then when Stalin and Clement Gottwald die in 1953, uh, these players are released. None of the players are allowed to play again for the Czechoslovak national team, but they are able to resume their careers playing for club teams. And some of them go into coaching and so forth. But it was a striking, you know, it's a striking story of how the national hockey team the world champions, Olympic silver medalists, and yet the the government, the STBA, and you know, certainly word would have had to come from higher up in the communist government, directs that this team essentially be wiped out. And in fact, Czechoslovakia did not participate in in the world championships for two years because the the national program, the national team was was essentially eliminated for fear that they would emigrate. It's Really a heart-wrenching story. Yes. One of the people, you know, the heart-wrenching part is I do talk about in the book, one of the players, the goalie, Bohumil Modri. Bohumil Modri, that's right. Who is, a, you know, he's just a fascinating, fascinating character. 
And he was, there's a common saying in in hockey and hockey circles that that goalies tend to be more cerebral. They tend to be loners. And and Modri was the case where he was really, he was an intelligent, smart, fascinating character. And he becomes more and more dissatisfied with the government, with sports officials in terms of how they handle the national team. He had actually requested to be allowed to play in the National Hockey League. And initially the government had said, yes, that would be good to have a, have a Czech player in the National Hockey League. And then when they pull back permission, he gets, he gets more upset and he does actually make plans to emigrate. And he's one player, so, and, and he's basically for the authorities for the STBA, they recognized him as the principal target and kind of the person at the center of this plan to, to emigrate. And so he is sent to work in the uranium mines. And when he's released, uh, he's the one person who this imprisonment and the hard labor affects his health. And he, he dies at the age of 43. So he's, he's the one person who you know, has the most tragic outcome in terms of this, this imprisonment. I'd like to draw, certainly not a parallel, maybe a risky connection, but I'd like to talk a little bit about current events and Russian hockey players today and how they're being affected by the actions of their government. How, perhaps, they're being restricted by the actions of their government. I was reading an article today about Ivan Fedotov, who was, I believe he had signed a contract with the NHL. Isn't that right? And then he was detained in Russia, and then he... Under circumstances that were not entirely clear to me, signed a contract with the Continental Hockey League. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this was the episode that happened in in the summer. So Fedotov had, uh, so he was a goalie. He played for the Central Army team in Moscow, and they had actually won the championship in the KHL last year, I believe. Yeah, they won the Gagarin Cup. So he had played in the KHL, had success in the KHL. Then he was signed to a contract by the Philadelphia Flyers, and it was a minor league contract. He wasn't going to go and play for the team in Philadelphia. He was going to play for their minor league affiliates and wherever. So he was making plans to go to, you know, to go to North America to play in the minor leagues, to perhaps get a chance to play, play in the NHL for the Flyers. And what happened, and it was, I did, I did do quite a bit of reading about this back in the summer, but, but like you were saying, it's, it's hard to pull the threads apart. What got him into trouble is he had not fulfilled his, his military obligation. And so there were concerns as to whether he would be able to get a visa to, to leave. And from my understanding, and I did read in the, in the Russian sports sites in terms of what, what happened, he was arrested for having a falsified military, military certification. So which indicated that, that he was not, that he'd fulfilled his obligation. He wasn't obliged to serve in the military. And the way the story unfolded is when he had been playing in the KHL, and I think it was in Ufa. He was with the team at Ufa, and he had gotten a one of these falsified military documents from a supporter of the hockey team there. And so the police had cracked down on this person who was producing fake military documents for athletes, for Russian athletes, as well as for other people. And as part of this, this sting operation against the person who was making the falsified documents, Fedotov was 
was recognized as he's got one of these falsified documents as well. And so in part, he was arrested for having this falsified document as part of this larger operation. And two, it served well to show that we're even making KHL players, professional hockey players, fulfill their military obligation. So he was arrested and he was sent up to, boy, he was sent to the far north to the military base. So I think this year he's slated to play for a military team at a far northern naval base. But, you know, the message was was clear that even if you are the goalie for the KHL champion Central Army team, you're still expected to fulfill your military obligation. And oh, by the way, don't go buying falsified documents. Now, the interesting part of the story is there was another NHL player who plays actually in Minnesota. So I live in Minnesota. He's the star for the Minnesota Wild, Kirill Kaprizov. And he was also involved. He had played in Ufa when he was in the KHL. And he was also involved in the questions as to whether he had one of these falsified documents. Now, he's a star. (laughs) He's one of the top scorers in the NHL. He's not a goalie who would be a minor league player in North America. And so he was able to, you know, whether or not he did or did not have a falsified document, he was able to leave Russia and he's back in North America right now playing for the playing for the wild. I fear that I may have asked you two questions in the wrong order. We've talked about the NHL and the KHL, but we have not really talked about the KHL. We have not talked about the history and formation of the Continental Hockey League. And before reading your wonderful book, I had no idea that the KHL existed. And I expect that there are so listeners who will not have known that. Can we talk about the, the history of the Continental Hockey League? Sure. Yes. You know, because this is fascinating. It's a fascinating story. And, you know, in your, your early comments, you talked about international politics and how they mix with sports and hockey. And, and this is one area in particular where it's really a, a fascinating instance of how Putin's international, his program for international politics and building Russia's status in, in Europe and in Asia connected with, with hockey and sports diplomacy. The KHL, the Continental Hockey League, was founded in, in 2008. So what had been the case in, in Russia before, so after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, so through the 1990s into the 2000s, is you did have a professional domestic league that, you know, basically was the successor to the old league, the Soviet league of club teams. So the club teams became professional teams and the quality of, well, for one, there there was little funding for these, these club teams. And so the top players would go to the National Hockey League in North America where they would earn more money or else they would go to the Swiss League or the German League, the Swedish or the Finnish League. So there was a drain of talent in hockey as there was in other areas of life during the 1990s and into the into the 2000s as Russian players would, would leave the country. And so the quality of domestic professional hockey of club teams in Russia steadily declined as the best teams left the country. And along with that, the quality of the national team also declined. So the national team was not performing as well in, uh, in international tournaments in the Olympics and in, in the annual world championships. 
So this was cause for concern among hockey officials, among hockey fans in Russia. And it was also a cause for concern of, of Putin. And I talk about in the book, there's this episode, if I'm remembering the year right, I think it was in 2006, when, when Putin calls the former goalie for the Soviet Olympic team. So one of the greats of Soviet hockey, one of the great figures in Soviet sports period, Vladislav Tretiak, is called into to the Kremlin. Uh, Tretiak has just been named the, the president of the Russian Hockey Federation. And Putin says to him, so when will we start winning? And Tretiak kind of, you know, dodges the question. He's like, well, we've got a winning spirit with our team now. I think, you know, we've got success. And, and Putin cuts him off and is like, no, 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 you, you're, you're dodging the question. It sounds like you haven't played hockey in a while. I'm asking, when are we going to win? And the, the implication was clear for Putin is that he wanted he wanted the Russian hockey team to follow in the follow with the legacy of the Soviet hockey team and to start winning international tournaments again, to start winning at the Olympics and, and the world championships. And so from Putin, and I talk about this in the book, you know, Putin did comment regularly about about hockey and this desire to have Russian hockey again be competitive with North American and, and North European hockey. And so the KHL develops out of this sense that Russian hockey has declined since the collapse of the Soviet Union and we want to keep our players from leaving and going to other leagues. And so the league was, uh, so there were really three three people involved in the creation of the league. One is, one is Putin, of course. Uh, the other is a former Soviet player. He played with the Soviet team in the 1980s and then played in the NHL in the 1990s and 2000s, Slava Fetisov, who he became Minister of Sport during Putin's presidency. So he's been very closely connected with, with Putin. And the other person is, is it Alexander Medvedev, the, try and remember the first name, I think it's Alexander. So who had been a top official, a top executive at, at Gazprom. And so Medvedev, he becomes the president of this league and he brings the involvement of Gazprom and other, you know, the other major oil resource companies. So these companies agree that they're going to basically underwrite the teams in the KHL, allowing them to pay high enough salaries to keep Russian players in Russia, as well as potentially draw some European players, even North American players to play in this league that, that plays in Russia. And so one of their top signings is the, the Czech star Yaromir Jagr, who comes and plays in, in Russia. So, but this is, you know, the story of this league is that this is an attempt to, one, it's intended to be a rival to offset the power of the National Hockey League and World Hockey. So, so Medvedev, Putin, Fetisov, they all see the KHL as being, this is going to keep European players and Russian players in Eurasia and North American players, Americans and Canadians will be the only players in the NHL. They also see it as a project in basically Russian soft power projection in that they envision a league that will go all the way from, from the Far East, from Asia to Europe. They see the league as having dozens of teams, teams in Germany, Slovakia, Czech Republic, Italy, who will all play in this, in this continental league based in Russia. 
The problem, of course, is that, you know, as with the Russian economy, as, as with Russia, it was all based on the fluctuations in oil and gas prices. So as gas prices go down, this, this really harms the, the teams. So there are American and Canadian players who played in the KHL and they tell stories. I've interviewed them. They didn't get paychecks. Facilities were broken down. You know, it was difficult to get equipment. So stories similar to what you hear from, you know, sports during the Soviet period. So the KHL has really been a, uh, a house of cards. It has not been a significant challenger to the to the NHL. And they did for a time have teams in, uh, there's a team in Finland, team in Slovakia, team in Prague, but there's really no presence any longer in Europe. And, uh, and now, you know, in the wake of the war, a number of countries, so for instance, the Swedes and the Finns, their hockey federations have said, if any Swedish or Finnish player plays for a KHL team, they're not playing for the national teams. They won't be able to play in the Olympics or the World Championships. There are a few, I would say, kind of mythical international hockey events associated with Eastern Europe. There's the Summit Series, a kind yeah. of clash of the Titans. And then there's the Miracle on Ice, which is a kind of underdog story. I would say <laughs> one of the last times that the U.S. was really yes. <laughs> an underdog in any sporting arena. Yeah. I would love to hear from you about both of these. Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Yeah. Well, let me just say a word about each of them. So, so this is the 50th anniversary this year of the Summit Series. So the Summit Series was this hockey series, obviously, four games in Canada, four games in the Soviet Union. And this was the first time that Soviet players who were technically amateurs, right, because they competed in the Olympics and in the World Championships, this was the first time that they were playing against professional Canadian players who played in the NHL. And everybody assumed that even the Soviets, even the Soviet players, everybody assumed that the NHL players would win handily. And what happens is right in the first game, in the first game, the Soviet players in Montreal, in the Montreal Forum, the home of the Montreal Canadiens, the Soviet team wins seven to two and just shocks the hockey world, shocks the Canadians. And so even though over the course of the eight game series in the final game, Canada, Canada wins. And so the final count is, uh, you know, Canada wins the series in terms of total games, but the Soviets win, win two games in Canada, both the first game in Montreal, as well as the fourth game in, in Vancouver. And those losses were really a shock to Canadian hockey and prompted a lot of soul searching in Canadian hockey circles in terms of why have we fallen so so far behind. So so that's a fascinating event, you know, particularly looking at at Canadian hockey. The event that, you know, most of our listeners will be familiar with is The Miracle on Ice in 1980. Many people have, you know, seen the film, seen the film Miracle. And that's I write about that in the opening pages of the book. That's one of my all-time favorite experiences as a sports fan. And as you mentioned, you know, what was interesting to me, you know, how the question for me was, how do I write about something that's so familiar and such a, a salient memory, you know, even for people who aren't hockey fans, they know the miracle on ice. And what was fascinating to me is, as you brought up, is this was a rare instance when Americans were underdogs in international sports. And a big part of that was the Soviets by this time. So Soviet athletes, you know, beginning already in the 1940s and 50s, were paid to be athletes. 
they would compete in the Olympics as amateurs. And, you know, so a, a player who played for the Red Army team would write down that his job was soldier. And, and I've seen these, these registration forms in archives. They would write, my job is a soldier. My job is not a hockey player. Even though year round, they trained and prepared and competed in hockey. Their, their livelihood was hockey and they were paid well for it. And so this was essentially a team of professional all-stars competing in the Olympics, representing the Soviet Union, claiming to be amateurs who were playing against actual amateurs, American college students. And so it's a fascinating story. And I think part of the reason it still has resonance in American culture is because it, it, it's the last true instance of the Americans being underdogs in international competition. You know, and I talk about when we watch, we all get excited to watch the U.S. Uh, uh, women's soccer team in the World Cup. It's a great story. We all cheer for the U.S. women. They're not underdogs. <laughs> we, we expect the U.S. women to win the World Cup every, you know, every year. So, yeah, so the, I think that's why the, the miracle on ice still holds resonance is, is especially given that you have the background of the rivalry, the Cold War rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union. And just it was it was so stunning when that team defeated this this, you know, juggernaut is the best way to describe Soviet hockey uh, in the 1970s and 80s. And it was a, uh, a professional juggernaut. We can call it that. So and you got to experience that yourself, right? You talked about listening to the radio broadcast with your father. Yes. Yeah. So that's yeah, that's when I used to teach courses in sports history and I've done lectures, you know, on, on sports history, I, I typically find a way to work in, you know, and this would be something I'd pose to your listeners out there of, you know, what is your, your kind of most dearly held sports memory, you know, of watching a game in person or watching a game on television. And, you know, it might be that your favorite team won, right? So, so you remember it fondly because it was a big win by your favorite team. And that was the case with me with, with listening to the U.S. beat the Soviets in 1980. But it's also the case that our, our favorite sports memories are usually caught up with who we were with when we, when we you know, experienced that. And it was the case that, you know, I have fond memories of sitting with my dad uh, in the kitchen in this winter evening in February, listening to this, listening to this game, both of us in disbelief that the Americans could actually win, win this game. So, you know, however many years later, I still, I still treasure that memory. That's a lovely story. Thank you. Thank you. And that's a yeah. great question too. What's our personal big sports memory? Yeah. So I understand that the 2022 NHL season is starting pretty soon. Is it not? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Before I read this book, um, the extent of my hockey watching experience was walking by the TV because my dad is an avid hockey viewer. And I was wondering if you had any recommendations for me, for the listener, who should we be watching this season? What do you think? Oh, good grief. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, thought it would be a softball. Well, I would like to say first, in having you just confess that you are not a, a hockey fan, that you're not interested, and you've told me before the interview and you've said it throughout, you've complimented my book. I, I really appreciate the kind words you've had for my book, the fact that you read it. And because that's what I tried to do with this book, I tried to write a work on hockey and a work on sports history that people who are not hockey fans and people who are not sports fans even will 
read, enjoy, and get something out of. I, I have a friend who read the book and, and she said, uh, you know, I, it was, it was just, a, I got it for the hockey, but it ended up being just a great history book. And so that's what I, you know, hoped to get across in terms of, of reading. In terms of, you know, who your listeners should support, of course, they should support the Minnesota Wild because that is my team. And by rights, the state of Minnesota at some point needs to have the the Stanley Cup here. So, yes, I was uh, last year, you know, the NHL has these outdoor games. And last year, the game was held in Minneapolis at the baseball stadium outside. I think it was 20 below and it was just the most, one of the most remarkable Minnesota experiences, right? All of these people all bundled up outside, outside to watch a hockey game. So, <laughs> you know, you know, I'm, I'm recording this from Texas, right? I yes. cannot process <laughs> the concept of 20 degrees below zero. You know, the wild was playing St. Louis and there were a lot of fans who came up from St. Louis who clearly did not get the memo about how to properly dress for a game in 20 below zero. Yeah. your book, I was really interested in some of the names that you mentioned. I know you talked about Anatoly Tarasov, who tried very hard to present himself as one of the most influential people in the development of hockey. Now, not to challenge Tarasov's influence, but I was wondering after all of your research, who do you think is the most influential person in the development of hockey? Yeah, that's a terrific question. And uh, something I write about in the book is, is Tarasov. So he was the coach of the Soviet national team in their great years, the 60s and 70s. And he really built his own reputation in his memoirs and what he wrote. He downplayed his his rivals and his colleagues and, and took a lot of credit for building Soviet hockey. Uh, so what I write about in the book is that we we can't necessarily call Tarasov the father of Russian or Soviet hockey, as he's usually termed. But he is indeed the most influential person in hockey history in terms of what he brought to the sport, particularly in terms of player development. And as I talked about earlier, this year-round program of off-ice training and conditioning and weight training, this was something that, that was really more than anyone, his idea. And we see, I mean, this is universal in hockey today. And more than that, this is universal in sports today, right? The idea that to be an athlete, even a youth athlete, is a year-round, a year-round demand, you know, that you need to train in your sport in the off-season. So this is something that comes from the Soviets and in particular comes from Tarasov. Dr. Berglund, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And there's so much of your book we didn't even get into. Yeah, that's, you know, Eliza, that's something I've appreciated. So I've done a number of podcasts, I've done radio interviews, and each interview you know, somebody picks out a different, a different part. And so I know, I know I did my job well in that, you know, for one, that someone like you, who's not a fan has enjoyed the book. And for two, that people can find different, different, you know, whether it's Soviet hockey or Swedish hockey or hockey in the United States or women's hockey, people have found different pieces that, that have resonated with them. I just want to say again, the book was absolutely captivating. I loved reading it. I would highly recommend it to anyone. Uh, yes, it's, it's a book about sports and I have enough experience with team sports that it did tug on those heartstrings for me. But I think even if I didn't, I would recommend it to anybody. Thank you. I appreciate that. 
Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. 